Hey everybody, it's Ep Percussion Podcast. It's episode 277. It's Casey Cangelosi here and we're recording on March 14th, 2021. You're probably listening on March 24th, 2021. And with me as always, my good buddies, Ben Charles, how's it going? Casey, how are you? Doing fine, thanks. And who else is here? Ksenia Kumyanovic is here. Hey Casey, congrats on your UNT 10 questions with the mega star Cangelosi. I, I freaked out a little bit when I saw that uh, Keiko Abe was on that, that yeah. um, Steve Gadd was on that. I was like, wait, I thought this was just like a little thing. Oh wait, that's right. Mark Ford like knows everyone. Yeah. And You're a way better marimba player than Steve Gadd, man. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like 2021, it's just, it's just good news keeps pouring out. I don't know if y'all saw on Facebook, I have my students making paper cranes for, for one of our colleagues. And if you don't know that tradition, like a thousand origami cranes, which dates back to Hiroshima, Nagasaki, there's a, a statue of a little girl in Japan holding a, a origami crane. And the idea, the, the custom now, the traditions, you make a thousand cranes and it's just, it's just uh, good wishes towards recovery. And, and I just found out today, my, my colleague is like totally turned it around and is going to be fine. And yeah, we were, we were really worried, but it was really fun to see just like, like I taught him how to make it. I sent out a tutorial and like Caleb wrote on the page, like, man, I'm 17 minutes in and I still haven't made one. We got to make a thousand of these things. Like, are you sure we're going to be able to do it? And I felt that way too, because I think it took me longer than 17 minutes the first time, but it was just, it was just really interesting to see everyone with like hardly any instruction at all, like figure out how to do it and watch them watch them, I, I don't know, get better at it and teach each other. And I feel like if I had planned this better, I would have almost made a little study out of it for pedagogy class or something, because it seemed like such a, a a teaching exercise and like how we learn exercise or, or something. There's something there, you know? Yeah, Ben. Yeah, my uh, my brother's wedding, they actually, they over time built, a, you know, folded a thousand paper cranes and, and hung them up. And afterward, they were, they lived in their house for a while. They were all on strings kind of hanging down. Very, very cool stuff. That's what we have to do. We have to string them up still, hopefully by uh, by next Tuesday. We'll see about that. Yeah, the stringing part is probably easier than the folding part, I would imagine. <laughs> it, yeah, it seemed impossible at first, but yeah, I strung maybe three strands today. You're supposed to do 40 rows of 25, and I got three done today, and it, it gets faster and faster for sure. But uh, yeah, speaking of other people involved there, Caleb's here. Hey, Caleb Pickering. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, likewise. Bravo with that Nick Bersamato recital. That was really good. I thought about taking a picture of it and posting like, hey, thanks everybody for coming to my senior recital. <laughs> yeah. if, if people don't know, this student of Casey and ours looks very much like me. And with the mask over it, we're pretty indistinguishable. So it's pretty funny. They dress the same, same height. Yep, yep. Good job, Nick. Uh, Tracy Wiggins is here. Hey, Tracy. Hello. It's been a while, buddy. It has. Uh, update us what's new we haven't talked to you in a long time um we you know i'm teaching at like the one school in the country that basically it seems like nothing has really been all that different um we had a full marching band season with like 13 or 14 performances learned our entire show as it had been planned but i also know all of the covid regulations very very closely now between yeah. masks and distancing and how we how we have to face space out the drill and everything else. And we just had our uh, band concert this afternoon. 
Um, so we've really, wow. like our administration basically said, we want you all to do all the things. And so we pretty much have. So I've had probably the weird, the least strange year of everybody here right now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We, uh, I, I applied for a exception for special learning equipment. So that was floating around. I bet some of you have seen that. And I think the art department brought it up like, hey, they're going to need access. The art students are going to need access to looms, to kilns. And I thought, well, geez, that's like the exact same thing. So I think the, the trick with Caleb and I teaching has just been, um, hey, we're not going to make you do anything you don't want to do You know, to the students. You don't want to meet in person. We're not going to make you. You want to do percussion ensemble virtually somehow? We'll figure it out. So, yeah, it's it's felt fairly normal. It's just percussion ensemble has been a little smaller. Yeah, we've done, I mean, in the fall, we did like all virtual, like, I mean, we were in person for like ensemble and stuff, but we did like, we didn't do a concert or anything, but we just did our first concert earlier this week and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's been fairly normal-ish. So, yeah. Anybody get sick? Do you have students getting sick with? Uh... We've actually not. Yeah, um, we have we've had a few students that had to quarantine here and there, but it was entirely related to things not having to go on with school. Like none yeah. of none of my actual students have had any illnesses from this. So we had one test positive and ironically, he was one that was staying home. Uh, he was not coming to school. Oh, no. um, so, yeah, funny enough. And then maybe it was a false positive, but. Yeah, interesting. Hey, well, moving right along, Christopher Dendellis, how's it going, buddy? I'm doing great. Hello, everyone. Yeah, it's great to have you. Great to have you back on the show for another roundtable. What's uh, what's new over there? Any anything to report? Oh, you know, we uh, we're moving towards normal. We finally started meeting in person about six weeks ago for the first time in the year, and um, it just yeah, it's we're gaining speed now. We're gonna do a full percussion concert in a couple of weeks. Um, after having met for five. So it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. Cool. Well, I know we're going to talk rep uh, probably fairly soon. So yeah, definitely want to know what you're going to do on your concert. And uh, Carly Vigna, you're also here. Hey, Carly. Yeah. Hey, Casey. Good you know, to see uh, you. thanks as always. Um, as we're talking about how normal or abnormal, I think I've had the least normal school year out of just about everybody. This semester actually was the first time that students were at FIU were allowed to go and practice in the studio, which is a big deal. Now they can, we're still virtual, but they can go and have their lessons in the studio, which makes a, a huge difference. Before that, we had the instruments distributed, like who needs marimba this semester, who needs, you know, xylophone or whatever. And it's just been crazy. Yep, but yep. Um, I do have some news today, and I thought since this is a roundtable episode, let's make it real roundtable-y news. Uh, a couple of quick things. Uh, 1939, Billboard magazine introduced the, the Hillbilly or country music chart for the first time. And I thought it was interesting for two reasons, but the biggest like country music apparently used to be called Hillbilly music. So um, there's that. Another quick thing in 1954, RCA manufactured the first color TV set, which had a 12 and a half inch screen. And who wants to guess how much it cost? In 19 what? 1954. 54. As if it matters to Cangelosi, but let's let him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now I feel a lot of pressure. Um, 800, $800. Close, 1000 See, Ksenia, relax. <laughs> Sorry. Was that today's money or back then money, Carly? 
back then. Back then, yeah. So that's yeah. a lot more now. That makes my guess more impressive. Right. Yeah. Right. Guess on the wrong side of it though. If, if you're going for today's no, money. No, no, no. I meant, I meant by then money. Yeah. Wait. Um, sorry to interrupt, but did you all know that before that, uh, when people had black and white TVs, you could get colored foil to put on sections of your TV so they would look like it's in color? I had no mm -hmm. idea about this. I knew that. My, you knew that? Did you yeah. have that when you were young? No. No, before, <laughs> me, before my time. I don't think I knew that, but I do know when like they first started making video games, they would have like, you would put like a, a overlay over your TV and I guess it would have like the game map or whatever. So the computer would only have to draw the ball or the character or whatever. Oh, wow. I didn't so know. crazy. But my mom told me, she was like, oh, I was cleaning out the attic and I throw away these foils that go on the, that used to go on the TV. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, we used to have them, you know, they're in three colors, green, yellow, and blue. And you would put them on your TV when you watch Westerns because, you know, you'd have the green for the grass and the yellow for the mm -hmm. mid section and blue for the sky. And I was like, wait, what, really? That's just like a tricolor thing. And she said, yeah, you know, when your grandfather sat there and saw that, he just slapped his knee and said, this is so good. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Sorry about that, everyone. Bleak me out. That's great. Not to turn it into the at TV podcast, but uh, there's this neat study. It's from way back, but people that grew up with black and white TVs primarily tend to dream in grayscale versus dreaming huh. in color. It's kind of oh, it's kind of interesting. I I found out that uh well speaking of black and white TV, um that that opening scene in the Wizard of Oz is that well I, I spoiled it, I gave it away. So apparently people in my generation, things most of our generations were all about the same age, but it's not that uncommon to have recurring tornado dreams, even if you've never like been in a tornado, never been in a bad storm. And I have been in a bad storm before, but never wasn't anything like life-threatening or scary or traumatic. But I still, every once in a while, get like a really bad like tornado dream. And it's apparently, it's like not that uncommon. People who grew up and were that age with The Wizard of Oz, that opening scene, you still have dreams over it. I get tornado dreams, but that's because I grew up in Oklahoma. <laughs> were you in a bad tornado? How do you know it's not from Wizard of Oz? Well, I guess it could be, but I think it was more from the fact that there's enough tornadoes around there that they filmed Twister in my hometown. <laughs> none, of those, none of those Twisters were real, though. All those Twisters were were. You don't know that. You weren't Casey, there. Do you know that the Wizard of Oz isn't real? I didn't know that. That's why, yeah, if I had known that. Sorry, more more news, Carly. That's great. Yeah, there's there's one more news, although now I'm, now I'm worried I'm going to start having tornado dreams. Um, mm -hmm. In... In 1881, Bela Bartok was born, so I, I selected this news to give Ben a chance to talk more about Bartok, perhaps some snare throw-offs, um, but I thought we're talking about repertoire today, so I thought um, I would talk about a couple of the, the highlights I think um, exist in Bartok's percussion writing, um, and then maybe we all share a little bit what we like about Bartok's writing. So top of the list has to be the sonata for two pianos and percussion right there's like so much amazing stuff in, in the whole piece um i love and some of you might too the second movement of the concerto for orchestra right that snare drum solo like how epic like it's it's so simple but so cool and i don't know if you all know this um snare drum solo by james campbell is called symphonic dances for solo snare drum and there's a whole movement based on this excerpt and it's like i got a student working on it right now it's so cool uh, very hip. And I think um, 
the xylophone writing, right? Music for strings, percussion, celeste, one of my favorites. There's the the bouncing yeah. ball, right? The celerano, and then the the all the doubles. It's so so cool. And then the the timpani excerpt, the fourth movement of concerto for orchestra with the viola line, and like just what a I love the orchestration. So what do y'all think? What's what's some of your favorite Bartok? My favorite Bartok music, I think, is a miraculous mandarin. Same. And the percussion <laughs> writing in that is really, really cool. And my only other Bartok thing I'll say, um, my interview here at JMU, I wanted to include some excerpts. And uh, geez, I forget if it's the concerto for orchestra or if it's music for strings, percussion, celeste, but it's the two Fs. It's really fast. It's really low. And a lot of people bring the 23 over by the 32 so that they don't have to cross that big distance. And it's just something I can do. I can do it all with one hand. So I just go, I just go like like that. And yeah, they think that's, that's real impressive. So I did that. That's all. Casey, I hope we don't get flagged for copyright for your- Because uh, I sang it so oh. well. <laughs> Very realistic. Well, I was going to say, I remember a while back, I actually, on the podcast, I did a little thing on, on Bartok. And of course, I always like go on these uh, uh, sonata for two piano and percussion rants. But uh, one one of my favorite features is Bartok has a sort of, I guess you could all uh, call it a genre of Bartok called night music. Uh, and in particular, the second movement of the the sonata is is considered night music, and there are a few other examples. And it's just sort of this like loose definition for very eerie, sort of ethereal, like floaty music. It's hard to describe, but um, in the sonata, the pianos are doing these glisses, I think in thirds, up and down the instrument, and there's this like really eerie sounding xylophone melody that I remember Carly and I went through like every mallet in both of our mallet bags till we found one that Carly liked for that and she used that beautiful mallet and it's just it's just like music that gives you chills and it's not even it's not fast or exciting in a traditional sense but it's just so calm and eerie sounding and that's that's probably my favorite Bartok is any night music of his. I love that second movement. Yeah, I, well, I didn't know about the term night music, but that describes it perfectly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and listen to that later. I just love his his orchestration. Like the writing isn't, I don't know, limited to the things that we normally think the instruments can do, right? It's inventive and outside the box. Now, to be clear, night music is not to be confused with music of the night, which is uh, in Phantom of the Opera, which is not by Bartok. That's not Bartok. <laughs> no, that's uh. Although that might have been cool to hear. The Bartok version of Phantom of the Opera. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> octatonic scales, yeah. I can sing that, like, I, I can sing that think of me, think of me fondly. I can sing that, like, right where it goes. In the right range. I'm not going to do it, but I can do it. Chris, I think you are going to say something. I was just going to say, um, I think there's a percussion ensemble piece based on that Bartok second movement excerpt called... Uh, Cotrab, it's like backwards. Uh, who's that by? It's by, I think, Richard Kvistad. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. and it just, it takes it, like, uses that as a theme and then does, like, theme and variations with it. The second, are we talking the second movement of the sonata or the concerto? Yeah, uh, no, the concerto, sorry. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's snare excerpt. Yeah, that's cool. cool. I didn't know that. It's called Cotrab? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's also, uh, I know that, uh, I think it's in his, one of his like sort of piano miniatures collection. There's uh, collections, there's a piece called From the Island of Bali, 
And there's actually a recording of Ahmed in the Percussion Ensemble has it, they've arranged it for percussion. And it's funny because Bartok wrote it for piano, but then when you hear it played on vibraphones and tuned gongs, it sounds exactly like gamelan music. It's just like, he might as well just, and maybe he did, it just sounds like transcribed gamelan music. Cool. Well, thanks for the, the birthday, Carly. We got a lot out of a birthday there. Yeah. Chris, what have you been playing lately? What, uh, what is your, what's your percussion ensemble going to be doing? And did you have any, any rep picks to share with us today? Yeah, sure. We, um, we are doing um, uh, Catching Shadows, the Trevino, which has been a lot of fun. Um, we are doing an arrangement of Riverdance, the, the Irish dancing uh, show uh, by Gary Fry. Um, takes several of the different kind of movements of it and puts them together in a medley. Uh, and they, the students really love that one because it's, you know, it's got a nice tune to it and it's kind of chopsy. And uh, we are doing Carnival of the Animals. And what we did is we took a bunch of different arrangements to come up with the entire suite. Uh -huh. And I, I did that mostly because we started remotely when we started this unit uh, or this uh, concert cycle. And I didn't know if we'd be able to meet in person or if, I, if we did, how many kids I could get into the room at the same time. So I could do small groups of students per movement and just kind of rotate them out for the different movements. So. Um, and then we're doing a couple, uh, a novelty piece. When, when you said taking different arrangements and putting mm -hmm. them together, you just reminded me, my, my friend at Majestic, the drum company Majestic, Chris Hankus, he's been helping his son's percussion ensemble do virtual things. And I, I, I forget if his son is in, it's either late middle school or early high school, but his son, of course, they're doing percussion ensemble virtually and they're trying to figure out ways to play and they're doing mm -hmm. click tracks and split screens and, and all that. But I guess for uh, the end of this concert or this cycle or whatever, they found a arrangement of Flight of the Bumblebee for solo marimba and they're having every student play like four bars. Mm -hmm. And then he asked myself, uh, I know Tom Burrett did it. I know he's asking Sheet Yu Wu, I'm sure she'll say yes, and a few other artists on the Majestic roster to play like a couple of the last few bars. So he's gonna string us all in. So he just said like, hey, play this to a, a 130 metronome click. And it was just like two bars, a little chromatic run. So I don't know, it'd be real, it's, I thought that was a really cute idea to have, uh, you know, for his, his kids' percussion ensemble. Yeah, that's, that is super cool and a, a really neat way. Cause one of the hardest parts is getting everyone lined up in even if they play right with the metronome you know it's when you don't have a reference around you it's hard to know if you're actually right on the metronome you know they they have really consistent time but are they like in front of the beat or behind the beat and they've got yeah. the beats around it <laughs> yeah right my only fear about this whole thing is like you know i'm gonna come up and they'd be like oh wow who's that it's <laughs> 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 like oh it's, who is this person oh well <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, well what um, when, when you when you're programming for your students right now, I mean, I know, uh, you, you know, I know we've had a lot of discussions about programming on the show. And man, I thought the recital that Caleb and I saw today just uh, was programmed so well. I thought, um, you know, Caleb and the student put so much thought into the order and everything. And I just thought like, oh, the pacing was so, so great. But of course, we program for the audience. But we also program for the students and, and, and what we hope these pieces will teach them. Is, is there any reason you chose uh, like Ivan's piece um, or the Sansons? There's something specific where you say like, oh, my students really need this right now. I want to I want to give them the Sanson. Yeah, you know, I usually have kind of a 
a, a checklist of things that I like to go over within a year or two with, with all of my students, but it was kind of all bets off for this year. Um, and I just had to find what was in my library <laughs> that would be able to work in these situations. Um, but I've been kind of eyeing uh, Carnival of the Animals for a while for the same reasons. I, I like working with students in small chamber groups and helps them build a lot of independence. Um, and uh, what, what's nice about it is they're really short movements. So even the really technical ones, they're not that, you know, not it's not that much for the, the students to have to really focus on at one time. So we can really start digging in with the musical stuff right away. I also like some of the movements are much easier. So I could put my younger students on it and they get to be a, a part of the bigger work. And then there's a couple really, really hard movements that some of my more upperclassmen advanced students could do. So it was, it was ended up being the perfect um, option for all the levels and options that I, I had to work through with them. Uh, I do like to make sure that I give them something that has melodic and harmonic content because there's so much music that doesn't and they tend to get stunted um, in their kind of musical cognition uh, from playing the same kinds of music all the time or same roles, you know, it's kind of yeah. groovy roles. And uh, I really do push to make sure that they're getting some elements of melody and harmonic interpretation in any concert. Um, and then I usually try and, you know, pick something that's going to, you know, that they're really going to just love to play. And the students wanted to do the Ivan Trevino. I was a little nervous about doing it because, like I said, we started remote. None of my students have a five octave at home. Um, and, uh, the, you know, there were going to be a lot of challenges with that. But we made the deal that we were going to learn it one section at a time. And when we could, if we got a chance, we would come into the building. And I said, you know, if we get a chance, we got to make it count. And they came in and the first rehearsal pretty much nailed it. I mean, it's crazy. So um, it's when, when there's something that they really, really love to play and they're passionate about it, they work so hard and they, they come in without me having to, you know, chase after notes with them. So, right. yeah. That's awesome. I was going to ask, uh, what do you do with pieces of music that the students don't love so that they they feel like they're dogmatically against this type of music that is not, it could be tonal, it could be groovy, it could be like, I won't play mm -hmm. anything besides Trevino or besides Cangelosi or whatever. Yeah, what do you do those? that's a great question. Um, I don't get a lot of that. We've been we've been doing pretty varied programming for for the entire time that I've worked with the ensemble. So, you know, they're used to doing the avant-garde stuff and the really kind of out there stuff that maybe they've never been exposed to. I usually do, before I give it to them, I start kind of previewing it and preparing them for it a little bit. But, um, you know, every once in a while, there's a student who doesn't love a piece, but as we work on it and I kind of show them what's going on and how they how it's really expressing something you couldn't do in a more traditional way, they they tend to buy into it a little bit more. And maybe they never love it, but they're usually by the by the time we perform it, they're usually pretty okay with it. And they understand that they have a role to play in in telling the story through the music. Um, but it it is a challenge. Most of the students are pretty open-minded about trying new things and and seeing new things. So and I think that's, you know, for most percussionists, something that, you know, anytime there's a new sound, we kind of want to explore it. So um, I, I, I'm very fortunate I haven't had to deal with that a whole lot. 
Um, my band students, that's another story. They're, they're not prepared as well for those kinds of things. So um, we're looking at a little uh, uh, variation on NC by Terry Riley, and, and some of them are really struggling with that idea. <laughs> Tracy, I actually wanted to ask you the same question. Which one? The one about like what we're doing right now, or uh, how do you or what we do if I have students that don't like what we're doing? <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah, <laughs> I I usually try to couch it in the fact that um, because I mean I do a lot of weird stuff, so I end up in that situation on a more normal than regular basis than maybe I want to, um, and I usually try to couch it in the idea that there's pieces they're going to get something out of any piece that we do. And sometimes that thing may be them deciding that they actually do not like this thing that we're doing, but that if nothing else, at the end of it, they're making the educated decision of having worked through the piece as to why they've come to the conclusion that maybe they don't like this thing rather than just the initial reaction of, I don't like it. Because there's a lot of times that I was talking with somebody about this the other day that we were talking about the fact that a lot of times we confuse it's I don't like it with it's bad fairly regularly. And we do that as a society in general. And so one of the things that I, now I will openly, I give my students a fair amount of like input in that I, I put it out there to them to bring pieces to me that they're interested in doing and for percussion ensemble and stuff too. Cause I want to know like what they're finding and everything. But I also tell them that there's, there's pieces that I have, pedagogical reasons that we're going to do these pieces and you've got to kind of trust me like there's a trust thing that has to go on there you've got to trust that i have a reason why we're doing this and you're gonna you know you're gonna see it along the way but i do think a lot of it is they have to trust you and your judgment that you're you're leading them down this path for a reason and you're not just doing it just because you want to watch them be tortured through it I think I've heard Casey say something along the lines of what I'm going to say, and, and you two both sort of hit on this as well. Uh, if you hand out a piece and they don't like it, it's probably already too late. I, I, like they need to be sort of prepped for it. And Casey says, like, don't the first, you know, major percussion work you're exposed to shouldn't be Zyklus. Like you need to work up to that. And I think that there's this sort of like almost, it's sort of the, uh, the idea of like, if there's something we're not supposed to do, then we want to do it even more. And so if I tell my students about this piece called Zyklus and build it up for several semesters, no, oh no, you're, you're not ready when they finally get to it. Not that I have any students playing Zyklus by any means, but when they finally get to it, it's like, oh, oh, I'm hungry for it. I really want it rather than, yeah, I, I don't really get it. So yeah, I don't know. It sounds, it sounds like everyone in the room kind of has the same view on sort of building up to it. Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, it, you know, for, for my students, a lot of times if they don't like something, it's because they're uncomfortable playing it more so than how it sounds. And if I if I can show them how the piece fits into the total program or what it's going to sound like and we work on it before we start playing it, they're usually more motivated to work through some of the, the challenges or things that they don't like about playing it, you know, which might be not playing a lot, <laughs> you know, or the, the gestural things that sometimes we have to do and some students are resistant to doing things that they have to speak or move to. Um, but if they understand how it fits into the total program and where it's going and why we need to do that, they're, they're, they'll usually go, you know, get through that initial stage and get quicker to the point where maybe they enjoy it a little more. 
I've had that same experience. So yeah, once you get past a certain point, then they buy in. And I mean, I've, I've had that experience myself several times. Like I'm going to start learning a new piece and I'm just like, Oh, I hate this. Cause it's like, I don't get it yet. You know, it's, it's like we said, um, I think actually I said on Marta's episode, it's interesting that the more seasoned performers and composers you talk to they you tend to not hear like, Oh, I don't like that piece. You hear like, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. Or like, I don't know what I'm supposed to get from this. You know, it's like there's there's an understanding of just like how huh, like like I don't get that, you know, not not it's bad or so uh, it, it seems like, yeah, for for a lot of folks, uh, primary concern, like, do I like it? And another primary concern is, do I like it as I'm doing it? You know, whether it's composition or performing, it's um, sometimes it's important just to remember, like, hey, you don't have to like this all the time. You know, like you don't have to like writing music all the time. It, it doesn't have to feel like this montage of, oh, and then this insight came and, and it just flowed out of me and the candles were burning and the sheets were, the papers were flying and, and I couldn't, I couldn't write fast enough because I had this inspiration. It's like, you know, I get bored of that question. I mean, even on this very show, like, what does a composer do when they're not inspired? How do you write? It's like, well, you just write anyway, you know, like everyone has the same answer. Um, for that, and hence that quote, you know, 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration or whatever. It's like, oh, this is pretty, pretty consistent how, how this is, you know, anybody else have rep they want to uh, mention or plug? I know we have a lot on Instagram. I wasn't going to plug any rep quite yet, but I, I think you guys are hitting on a, a really important point that especially with younger students, I think um, it's hard equals I don't like it. The same way Tracy's saying sometimes I don't like it equals it's bad, you know, and, and like Chris was saying, if the students get comfortable with what they're doing, all of a sudden it becomes like, okay, I think I can do this. I understand and I see my role. Um, and sometimes that's the repertoire that's like exactly what they need at that moment, you know, for mallet marimba playing is hard, like, okay, we're going to do this piece where you have you know, maybe not the hardest for mallet part in the world, but like you're going to have to get comfortable with it and then they get there and they start to buy in. But actually, I also wanted to ask, was anybody ever that kid that was like, I don't like this piece. Why do I have to do this piece? Anybody have any embarrassing stories? I was never that kid playing a piece, but like, this is hilarious for me to hear today. But I remember when I was an undergraduate, like my freshman or sophomore year, there was a graduate percussion quartet that was playing third construction. And they played it on the percussion ensemble concert, as well as all four of their recitals, as well as in studio class and maybe somewhere else. And I didn't get it the first time I heard it. And I just, I hated it every single time they performed it. And I'm really embarrassed to say that at the percussion ensemble concert, when they played it, I actually walked out. I left, <laughs> which so uh, cool, I, I've definitely like turned around my viewpoints on that piece. I think for the better, I, I love that piece now, but actually I, I played it in my I think, first year of grad school. So uh, I think there's, there's something to my, my level of musical maturity, but I, I, like I said, I've never had that as the player of a piece. Um, but I've definitely had that as the listener of a piece. I mean, you might've been right. Like maybe it sucked. Like it's possible to play that piece badly. I mean, just like it's possible Looking to play anything players, badly. I, I don't think that was it. Looking at the players and who was coaching them. I don't, I don't think they were doing a bad job. I, think I, I, just... I, I I'll <laughs> say this. I've seen contemporary ensembles over and over where it's like, okay, we're playing this super hyper avant-garde work and we're just 
because we're just doing it and we're presenting it, that's why it's good. Like, because we're just doing it at all, that makes us amazing. And that makes it amazing. It's like, no, you still have to like play well. Like you still have to perform well. Like you can't just like rest on the fact like, dude, we're playing freaking Zanakis. And that's like the most, that's the most contemporary intellectual crap ever. And that's, and that, and that's all it takes. You just have to like play it. It's like, wait, no, you still gotta like play. Like you still gotta play. Like, I don't care how, hyper avant-garde intellectual you think you're being you still got to like put some put some emotion into it i think i had the same experience as ben except it was time for marimba it was like my freshman year of undergrad and i'm sure like, you never heard that studying with brian zader <laughs> so yeah so I, he was finishing his doctorate when i came into college as a freshman and i think between him and a grad student i probably heard time for marimba like all, all the time for marimba <laughs> like all the time was for marimba mm. over the course of like a year and a half and i hated it every single time until brian zader did his um he did like a dry run of his lecture recital for us and he explained some of the compositional things in it and then like it finally clicked and like once i once someone like gave me some insight into what's going on i was like able to follow it and it made more sense um just to me and I, now you know now i enjoy it i appreciate it yeah yeah i was gonna say back to what you were saying casey about the like contemporary ensembles and stuff like that the thing i coach a contemporary ensemble as part of my gig and the thing that i preach to them all the time is integrity like there has to be integrity to how they're approaching the piece because it's really easy for groups that are going out and doing contemporary music to say well nobody's gonna know if it was right anyway and, you know, the thing that we preach to them all the time is that if you do it, if you're careful with the notation, if you're careful with, like, the intent, with your sound and everything like that, even if the audience doesn't get all of it that's going on, they're going to get the intent behind the performance. And a lot of times that can help make a big difference. Yeah. Well, I feel like if someone's doing it really well, you turn, you, you like, you go into a different state of observation. Like, you stop looking for like like you turn off the musician and you just like go to something something deeper something like something you had back before you went to school and you didn't know what to look for you know and you connect on something like really really you know i mean i'll say spiritual like like really really deep um and, and i think about that with um um i complimented marta so much the last uh, episode or so ago about like I mean, she's playing rep that i've heard plenty of people play but it's like no her i mean rupert kettle tambourines was just like whoa it's just other otherworldly and and i stop like i stop i can i can articulate what i thought was so good about it but as you're watching that you just like stop thinking about notes you stop thinking about their time you stop thinking about Oh, was that a was that a five over three with their hand and foot? Like you, you just stop noticing that stuff and you start going like, whoa, 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 there's something, there's something so much better here. But I I also had the same experience as far as like with the piece. Like it, it was in my master's degree and it was uh, it was a Stuart Saunders Smith vibraphone piece that Chris Schultes assigned it to me and I hated that piece from day one and he he dug in his heels and he was like, no, you're going to learn this piece because you need to get through 
the process of trying to like work your way because it was so different than anything that I had done at that point. He's like, you need to work through intellectually the process of trying to understand what's going on with this and everything. And to his credit, I do actually like the piece now and still play it. Uh, but I was, I fought tooth and nail when that first came out. I was looking for every other piece in the entire repertoire that I could replace that piece with. What, what piece was it? Uh, it was the first links. Links. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Stuart Sundersmith because that's some music that it can be hard to dig into. And especially if you have expectations about, you know, even even often when I perform his music, I tell people, like, don't feel like you're not getting something. Don't feel like there's some underlying meaning that you're supposed to understand about this. That's not really not really what it's about, but it, it can be tricky to get into, especially especially for students. Um, my my piece and I am 99 percent sure I never fought back and actually told my teacher, I don't want to do this, but I didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't understand it, it was Torse 3, the marimba solo. You guys know this piece? Yeah. I had a hard, hard time with that piece as a little freshman. <laughs> That's actually my favorite marimba solo. Hey, there it is. I actually, wow. I haven't revisited it since, um, I guess, 2006, 2005. So maybe I would like it and enjoy it and understand it now, but was a little bit scarred by that. I went from like a, a bunch of Bach to Torch Three. <laughs> sure. Any other any other reps from the hosts before we go to the people, the people of the podcast? So, what are we talking about mean? stuff we hate or stuff that taught us a lot, or stuff know. that we hated and taught us? I don't us know. A lot? I don't know. This is your idea. Well, I don't know. One piece, like whenever whenever anyone says like what's a, what's an underrated percussion piece that more people should know, like my immediate answer is Kevin Putz uh, and Legions Will Rise, uh, or is it I can never remember is it and Legions Will Rise or Legions Will Rise. I think I, I get confused with the Joe Schwantner piece, but anyway, the one for uh, marimba, clarinet, and uh, violin. Uh, I think it's outside of percussion even. I I think it's in my top three favorite pieces of music ever written. It's it's really that good, and there's just an absolutely breathtaking performance with Jihei Jung on YouTube that I think everyone should check out. Do you know the Makoto Nakura uh, recording? Yes, uh, there he recorded on a CD and I've heard his recording, which is also very good. Um, but the Jihei one is great because it's, it's video as well and it's a very well yeah. done video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also Jihei Jung, so. I don't think I've had um, that kind of a relationship with with music. There was definitely a lot of contemporary music that I did not get. And especially when I lived and was surrounded by players who did not appreciate it or performed it at a very high level. And then when I moved into an environment where everyone saw that as their drug of choice and performed it really, really, really well. Uh, was when I sort of developed an appetite to perform it a lot. And I think one of the things that, just like Tracy said, it's about integrity. It's about you needing to deliver the best performance you can of whatever that music is. So um, for me, I've had a, a huge learning curve with Time for Marimba. <laughs> when, I, when I got that piece, I was also like, okay, well, I... I uh, of course, I analyzed it. I understood it, but it was it was a huge thing for me to let all those Lego uh, pieces fall into place. But I think the point is get get out of get get over yourself. Whatever music you're given, you can either be like, okay, I'm gonna do my best to nail this and be deliver the best version that anyone's ever heard, 
or you can sit there and constantly have a conversation with your ego about how that doesn't fit your aesthetic choices. Well, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. The, the sooner that you dive in, the better that it's going to be for you and for everyone else. So I say just go for it. There it is. There's the pep talk. Are, are we at a point in the show yet that we can talk about Bach? <laughs> no, I think I think we I thought we agreed that'd be episode four hundred and twenty three. We'd be we'd be ready. I just think you know if we're thinking about like what is essential repertoire, what do we what do we like working with and find the most fruitful to work with um, students on? I think really any Bach for me like we learn we learn phrasing, we learn melody and accompaniment. We can be harmony. We if we're doing fugues, we're all the layers balance between the voices. Um, of course, like this is our chance to play Baroque music, um, even though we play it differently than, you know, a harpsichord players or any other instrumentalists. But one of the things that I think is so important with students, especially is knowing like if they go back to the text, the version where no dynamics, no phrasing, nothing is written in, you can have the conversation of what do you think is the peak of the phrase? How do you want this line to be shaped? And that's so important. Um, you know, I think just shifting students from thinking I've got to do this the right way or I'm going to do this how my teacher says and then asking them that question of what do you think about the shape of this line is so important. Well, Casey, will you then ask the question of what we actually wanted to talk in this episode about or um, wasn't that it wasn't um, what what repertoire do you like help I don't know I don't remember wasn't it your question what was your question <laughs> tell us yeah, you and, you invented this. to tell us <laughs> so our our topic for today's show was or, or idea was yeah. to think about the repertoire what is the one piece that you think is the best teaching tool um, it could be something that you've gone through and you found it works really well for others, or it could be something that you definitely ask your students to do. That's not what the sheet says, man. The sheet says... Because you sort of took notes while half listening while I was talking. It says, ask everyone top five rep picks. That's what the sheet, sheet never lies. <laughs> Solo and chamber ensemble, best and worst pieces to teach. That's what it's, that's right there. But I like, I mean, I like, I like your version too. Should I edit all this out or leave it in? I think leave it in. It's, uh, it's, it's okay. Well, then uh, go ahead. You take it away. <laughs> well, why not? I think we've all said something um, on this, but I think we had a lot of good uh, Instagram responses, right? Can you share some of those with us? Because you, you, yeah. I think you rounded those up. Yeah, yeah, we did. So I asked uh, to our, I asked our listeners on Instagram, what was the one piece that they learned a lot from and then asked a lot of them to say why and what they learned. So here we, we got a really a flood of responses. So we had uh, one uh, Christian from Florida wrote from Florida said dances of earth and fire. He said uh, dances uh, of earth and fire studying dances of earth and fire but Klatsau has really challenged any ideas I've had about sound production color and feel in the first movement it's really fun taking the words dark and heavy and actually trying to figure out what those words sound and feel like in the second movement I've had a great time trying to figure out how voice melody how to voice up melodies while also trying to create a dance I can't read today but but you figured it out uh Ben says Dances of Earth and Fire was the one piece oh, yeah. I hated. Discussion we were having earlier, I had totally forgotten about that one. That's one that I did not like 
when I started right. learning it. And I, I didn't complain to my teacher about it. I just kind of sucked it up and did it. And then when I finished learning, I was like, oh, this piece is actually really good. So <laughs> there's my yeah. answer for that. Yeah, I feel like we've talked about the show on I've talked about that piece on the show before. And it must have been must have been you, Ben. I know I've never been crazy about that one. And that's one I probably need to play to to get yeah, it. You know? I'm a big fan of that one. That's one of my favorite pieces. It, it's one that I realize like it's renowned as very good. And I feel like I've heard Bob Van Sice go into an in-depth um, explanation of it. Or maybe I saw him doing a class on it once or something. But yeah, it's one of those ones that like, oh, I realize there's a lot of stuff here, but I, I haven't, I haven't, hasn't stuck with me yet. Well, that's awesome. Uh, would anyone else like to read from that sheet so we could diversify the colors of our voices? No, 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 because then you go. <laughs> I'm in charge. This um, all right. All right. Sorry. Sorry, sir. Okay. Then we had uh, Will Brown, Florida. <laughs> He said um, his pick was Reflections on the Nature of Water. He said it really opens up the mind to the colors possible on marimba, and in particular teaches you how to use precise technique and dynamic shading to achieve those colors. All this while also giving you a glimpse into non-traditional atonal harmony. So learning the piece really just broadens your horizons in big ways. I think learning it transitioned me from novice player, novice player to a halfway competent. How do you say novice? Novice? Novice. Novice. <laughs> We should have told you no vice. <laughs> no vice. No vice. Play it with no vice. <laughs> Someone else read. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where you are. Where are you reading? I got I'm one. On, I'm on the sheet. Okay, go, Ben. It's on the, on the doc. Uh, yeah, I, uh, Keith Leslie wrote in. He said, Rotation 2 by Samut. He said, it taught me so much about phrasing. I consider it the first advanced piece I learned in school. So it also taught me about patience and persistence. And I think that the really anything by Eric's move, but really the four rotations are an excellent uh, way of fusing music and technique together. They require the utmost technical precision, but they also are very musical and interesting to listen to. Uh, I have a student actually that a uh, high school senior that just finished learning rotation two. And so, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a very good way of teaching the hands how to move fluidly between notes. Um, and I will say one thing of interest, they, for some reason, don't print the stickings in the rotations anymore. Uh, you can pretty much figure them out just by looking at up stems and down stems. But generally, uh, when there are two notes beamed together, it should actually be done on one hand, alternating between the mallets, not two notes on the same mallet. Um, so uh, yeah, you can, I guess, uh, figure that out. <laughs> Well, I'll share one more. This is from um, Caleb on Instagram. Not not this Caleb that's here today. Different Caleb, I assume. Um, and he wrote about corporel. He writes, corporel to me is one of the most important pieces in the repertoire for a solo percussionist. It points directly toward a philosophical understanding of life. Not only that, but there's so much room for shading and nuance in the piece. I think there's also so much room for interpretation in the piece. You can watch you know, five different versions of corporel by different players, and they're they're so different. Um, he writes, Corporal also taught me how to sell a piece more effectively, takes people out of their comfort zones, which I believe is where art is made. That's a beautiful sentiment. And I would second that, you know, um, I did Corporal after I did Dressor, which I love to talk about. Um, and Dressor for me was a piece that was like something that large scale and that theatrical um, pushed me way out of my comfort zone and, and pushed the boundary of like what what is acceptable what my persona is on the stage so anything theatrical is certainly going to push 
push those boundaries for students and, and professionals. Well, it seems like it's in that Steve Schick school of thought, like, you know, one of the first things you should do is corporal. So all the stage fright things are really, you know, they're really open and they're really out there. And th those of you who don't know, this piece is just, a, it's a body percussion piece, just you sitting on the floor, um, shirt off, facing the audience and um, tapping your body. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's really out there, you know, it's, 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 it's a very contemporary piece and uh, yeah, no instrument to hide behind. Uh, yeah. yeah. No flashy notes to hide behind. Lots of weird noises come out of your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But then on the other uh, side uh, of, of the music spectrum, we have um, Bartek Miller uh, who writes to us, from Poland. He was also one of the award winners for our jingle. And uh, he said it's a uh, Bach's Chacon in D minor. And he said, oh, there's so much to say. I mean, any piece of Bach played on the marimba teaches you great modesty to what you're doing. The way of phrasing, the way of perception from a bigger picture into an entire piece, which is for me one of the most difficult things to do in terms of interpretation. Bach teaches you silence on the marimba, as weird as it sounds, but I really think this works like that for us percussionists. I thought of the Chacon because it is for me one of the most complex works of his for violin solo, which we adore, which we adore to play for obvious reasons. Just by the fact that in the Chacon you have uh, so much there to say to tell for the entire colossal 14 minutes in average. It's very easy to fall into the trap of too much to assume. And this rule, quote unquote, in particular can be or even must be applied to anything that you are doing in music, in my humble opinion. So generally speaking, once I understood how I can play the Chacon, I actually understood how I can express myself on any piece of music in a very conscious, mature way, with the distance to everything you're doing, and a good control of time and phrasing, which works, of course, on every percussion instrument in any period from Baroque to contemporary. And that's how Polish authors write sentences, that, a sentence that's 12 sentences long in its uh, English equivalent. <laughs> but beautifully said, I think what he said, that Bach teaches you silence the value of silence and the pacing not falling into too much too soon i think is very very beautifully said i was going to say the same about pacing that's a, that piece is like an epic journey from the beginning to the end and that's one of the things say i remember actually the very first time i met you we talked about the chacon do you remember i was playing it that semester and oh I my god yes <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you might have played it for for Svet in a lesson around. Yes, I, I played it after I played it after we met. But yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just remember talking with you about it. And the, the thing that I learned the most from that piece is pacing and just being able to like, you don't rush through that first page. You can't, you yeah. can't, you have to have like old man time and sensibility there. Like, here it is. Just be patient. Casey time. Um. <laughs> What, what do you, um, I feel like Bach, like if you didn't believe in like long notes, short notes, even though they're all the same length, you like you do now, you know, like it just has to be there, um, especially in something like Chacon, you know, right there at the beginning. Um, so yeah, if, just speaking of like what a student might be able to get from it, you know, it's like you can't just like throw the note down and then wait for the next note. It's like, no, no, you have to keep, you have to keep, you're done playing, but you're not done performing, I guess, you know. Um, like even those first couple of chords, it's like you have to, you have to, it should be like, you know, elastic in between one to the next. Uh, I feel like a lot of, a lot of good moments 
come come out when you yeah you teach that that first Bach piece. Um, do you guys have any like what's your favorite way of teaching like phrasing and expression? Because I feel like it's such a moving target. It's like like so many times I feel like there's no real way to you just have to do something and it has to be intentional and like it works if you go down it works if you go up it works if you peak in the middle um there's so like you can find a contradictory example out there of everyone doing it all different ways like where do you like hey here's how you here's how you play Bach here's where it is anybody have a resource I, I know this is like a cliche really easy answer but listen to recordings right and they're all different and I know that's actually my answer too like like because because if they are all different, if you listen to a bunch of them and you can hear how they're different, you can hear a lot of different ways to do good things, but also realize there are a lot of ways to do bad things. Again, there you it's go. just not a tool in your toolkit. Well, and I guess it's like, okay, I know like if you if you did this up and then you do this down, then you do this up again, the next thing, it feels wrong to suddenly do this. Like I can always have that opinion, but yeah, it feels a lot like uh, I'm a, I'm a jazz teacher. They just say like, listen, 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 listen. Like you got to get a sense of this and you got to get a sense of why it feels weird to play that resolution at that dynamic based on how the previous three things you set up. It's okay to play that resolution at that dynamic, but only if you set up the the previous three steps that way, like you were m making this moment one way and then you suddenly change it. And like, yeah, so I, I agree so much. The the only way to do it is just like, yeah, you gotta like gain an instinct for it. And that is, I agree with you, Ben, that's, that's to listen. Okay, I see you guys are yelling at me in the chat. Tracy. I was gonna say, when, I, when I'm talking about the teaching phrasing, I, yes, like listening to all the different recordings of Bach by as many artists as there are, but, my go-to when it comes to actually teaching phrasing is Carrie Manalakis singing singing Creep by Radiohead. Uh, if you don't know this recording, it's, it starts so subdued. And she's like almost whispering and stuff. And it's like this long, long stretch until like it finally reaches this moment where like it kicks into like, the second version of the chorus and stuff like that. And she's like, just she's a Broadway like singer. And like when she finally lays it out and I just, I use that with my students to teach them like how you can draw everything. And like, you're just tight. You're winding the ball tighter and tighter for the audience until you finally just like, there's that moment of release. And that is my go-to on a regular basis for talking about like phrasing and like how to like suck the audience in and stuff like that. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know that recording. I'm going to have to check it out. Um, I actually, I talk about this, like students have to know one, how to find the peak of the phrase and there's no like absolute answer, you know, like, oh, look for this, this one thing. Um, but you know, things like contour or the harmonic tension or rhythmic tension, depending on what we're doing. Um, and then every phrase can have a different shape, right? It can be Usually like the peak of the phrase is a little past halfway or towards the end, but not always. And I tell them like there's, it can be different shapes. There can be multiple correct answers. There's lots of different ways that you can do this. Um, and specifically with instruments like marimba, for example, I talk with students about all we have is the note itself, right? We can't connect things in a bow um, or with tonguing and slurring the way that wind players can or string players can. 
But what we have to do is make sure that the shape we're creating which e with each of those individual notes, think of it as dots on a line, and then the listener's ear is going to connect those dots, ideally, as long as there's no outlier. Um, and normally when we're in person, actually I started doing this on the whiteboard in Zoom too, but like I'm always drawing these like, here's your dots, here's your phrase, there's the peak of the phrase. And then what we want is to be able to connect them and it makes sense. Yeah, I, you know, I one of the first things I thought right away was, you know, singing. Uh, and sometimes it's just me singing as they play, modeling some ways that it can go so they can hear the length of the notes that maybe doesn't get produced by the instrument. Um, but then having them sing too as they play is really important, I think, for them to internalize kind of how we internalize time. We have to internalize phrasing too. Um, but I, one one thing that I live by is uh, we I brought the students to a Steve Schick masterclass at uh, Madison one time, and he was amazing. But he talked a lot about subscribing to the suitcase method and how you're going to take a phrase and you're going to, you know, if you're going to go on a trip, uh, you're going to pack everything in the suitcase that you're going to need on that trip. And sometimes you don't know what you're going to need on a trip. So you're going to pack a few extra things too. Um, and the idea is that you're going to pack in your suitcase a bunch of different ways to interpret some of the phrases or play sections of music because you don't know in that moment what, what you're going to need based on the hall or the audience response or the things around you or the instruments. And, the idea of just kind of packing in the suitcase a lot of different ways of doing something it allows the, the, the performers to be more naturally expressive rather than programmed to be expressive. Um, and that's another way of kind of internalizing it is packing the suitcase. Mm -hmm. I like the one, uh, tools in your toolbox, but I think I'm going to keep packing, keep, keep your briefs in your suitcase, change it up. Yeah, too many people have heard the toolbox one. I'm getting sidetracked as I do. Nobody's ever heard briefs in your suitcase. <laughs> well, yeah, it's new now. It's fresh. It's new. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like percussion is really is really weird where we're the most atypical musically. Like, you know, winds and strings or, or voice, you know, there's clear melody. And then other people, you know, a chamber group, there's a melody, accompaniment, you know, some sort of baseline or continuo or whatever happens to be going on depending on the style but yeah like marimba we so much music gets focused around uh you know how to get from note to note or to fill the space and i feel like i oftentimes have to take music and like strip down the melody like like all notes are not created equal like this kind of uh pairs on to what carly was talking about but you know you have I mean, you know, standard melody, if it's four bars, you have an A microphrase, an A prime microphrase, a B, and then a C or an A double prime like microphrase, you know, that connects everything together and lets it loop back into itself. But I feel like so often we think the melody is really complicated when in fact, you know, the younger students, they say, oh, you know, it's this with all these notes. It's like, well, if you strip down like rotation four, you know, it's this shorter melody, and then this, you know, strip it down a little bit more and take out any rhythmic dissonances that are just subservient to the main melodic notes. Like you can take Harley's idea of like, you know, this goes to here, here goes to here. And, you know, it really helps, I feel like me, figure out where I'm going, like how fast I'm going to pace it to get there or leave there. But yeah, I think, I think, I don't know. Sometimes I think phrasing is not that complicated. Like I think we over, we, I know I just gave an over, 
explanation of like micro phrasing. But yeah, I feel like it's not um, inherently complicated when you strip it down to here's the bare bones notes, here's our root, you know, here's we're going to, you know, the supertonic, here's the climax of the phrase, here's a dissonance that's going to go up to like, I don't know, flat seven, then we're going to go back down here, then we're going to take it to root. And we have this nice little roadmap of where, okay, we want these non-tonic or dominant notes to stretch a little more, have a little more emphasis. Simple and not, yeah, 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 simple and not overcomplicated. Um, it's like the complicated way of explaining it, but I think, I feel like we do it uh, naturally a little bit. You know, if there's like, you go up to a really high note and it hits like we want it to linger, like you like you want it to last a little bit longer, or you want things that are passing notes, you know, like if you're in, you know, stock diatonic scale, you know, the three kind of sucks. Like the three is the most uninteresting note of the scale, the third. But um, I don't have a full point I'm trying to make. I just sometimes, I think it's like overcomplicated, but not, I don't think it's that complicated. That's why I think it's instinctual. It's just like, it's like part of me just thinks, okay, instead of stripping this down and prescribing it all, I just want to like sit and listen. You know, let's like, let's pull up another score and just like start getting the into your into your being you know yeah no exactly i mean i agree i think it's it's uh, of course it's valuable to be able to analyze just like if you were to listen to someone who is really great at rhetoric um you need to understand whether you are persuaded because they're really good at delivering or because the idea that they're delivering is what's important to you so yes you can in that way also strip down a performance and understand what components make it convincing but ultimately i mean nobody i mean like in pop music who talks about these things who goes up to billy eilish and is like man i'm not sure about your or lady whatever person i'm not sure about your phrasing or madonna i'm not sure about your phrasing you feel this stuff even if you don't have music education you feel this stuff and most of the students who have a hard time phrasing Bach don't have a hard time phrasing Metallica and they don't even think about phrasing it it's just like oh man I get it I feel it so it's just about not opening up enough or not not even trying not thinking about it as music I have think. you ever asked a student to phrase like master of puppets <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just all the time. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I, I agree with all that. I, th I think, though, you know, what we do as experienced musicians is different than what student musicians do. And maybe the big reason for that is technique gets in the way of being able to play expressively or, or phrasing. And I, I don't know about you all, but I, I sometimes have students who learn pieces one note at a time, and you're not thinking about phrases for a long time until you start connecting those notes. So I, I do think that if you practice one note at a time for a long time, you're practicing your way out of phrasing. Um, so that's why it's important to learn the music for itself and then develop that technique too, because, you know, a lot of students, they can play dynamics, but they forget about the weight of the note or, you know, you know, little technical things. And, you know, a lot of times they'll play a, a beautiful phrase as a nice and up and down. And then they get to the end of the phrase and it's like thrown away, you know, with hammered down notes and, uh, it's, it's really easy when you're thinking about, oh, I got to do this next to finish the idea. And, and like we were talking about with Bach, you know, being slow and patient and really taking our time with things. But I, I think for students, the, the phrasing might be obvious for something that's easy or more understandable. But when they get into something that's 
that they're striving to understand, it's, it's pretty far away from them. I think uh, Casey said something about like, it's sort of like inst instinctual or natural or comes from within. And I actually would like to disagree with that because a couple of things. One, I remember we we heard this anecdote. I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, there was like a foreign exchange student from India that was in the U.S. studying, and his family, you know, host family took him to a an orchestra concert. And afterward, they said, "What was your favorite piece?" And he said, "The first one." And they said, "Oh, the Beethoven." And he said, "No, the one before that." And what he meant was the tuning note. And he said, because like in, in his culture's music, this idea of like micro, micro intervals, micro tuning was like just what his ears were familiar with. And I think that if it was instinctual, and I think there is a certain amount of instinct to it, but uh, it, we wouldn't have to teach it if everyone just sort of got it like instinctually. So I think it is a learned skill. And I think it's one of those things like where when you first pick up a drumstick, like it's also, you know, hold two mallets in one hand, it's all sorts of awkward. Then when you do it over time, it becomes natural. It becomes built in, it becomes instinctual. So I think it's maybe a learned instinct is a better way of putting it. But I, I don't think yeah. that there's any natural knack for it. And if a student does seem to have a natural knack for it, it's probably because their parents or just at a young age listen to classical music enough to get the sound of it in their ear. My I think it's more like that one. Yeah. And you're right. Yeah. It would be, it, you learn and you listen until the, till the point that it is instinctual. Cause it's like you, if you're going to sight read, tell them on flute, something that you've never seen before, you're familiar enough with the style that even if you were sight reading it, you would just instinctually phrase, um, probably yeah, phrase funny. the right way. It's funny that you bring up sight reading because that is one thing it's like when you're sight reading something just do something with phrasing even if it's wrong just do something because it's so boring to listen to someone just fumbling through the notes it's like yeah sure like build up as you go up the line get louder something like that but i find students a lot of the time when they're sight reading or just beginning a piece of music and they're still in the learning phases they just don't have any phrasing at all and it completely changes your approach to the piece when you finally add in phrasing so i try to get my students to build in phrasing for an early point in the learning process What's wrong, Ksenia? I still think the conversation is completely wrong and it's so boring and phrasing doesn't exist. It's like, could you please have inflection while you speak? You always have inflection while you speak. But and imagine, I, I agree with what, what with what Ben was saying, like we wouldn't have to teach it if it was natural for everybody. And we've all had students that we don't have to talk about phrasing, right? We've had students where it's just natural. We love what they're doing, the shape that they're doing. But then what do you when you have a student that you're like, wow, like, I remember I was a little kid playing piano competitions and I remember my first competition, the results, like the, I got the comments from the judges and they said, play with more emotion. And I remember I was like, I don't know, seven or eight years old. I asked my mom, like, what does it mean to play piano with emotion? Like, I'm just playing the sonatina and what, you know, and I was like a little kid, I didn't, I didn't get it. But sometimes students don't realize that they have to be expressive and they're, you know, there's a sentence and a phrase and a shape that, that has but to come back. But why do they listen to music then? Do they, I mean, do they listen again to Billie Eilish? Because I'm, I'm really on this Billie Eilish. <laughs> but do they listen to Billie Eilish because not phrasing? Because No. But they don't always see the connection between- But that's exactly, the, like. It, they like want to study music and they don't see what they study as music. I'm sorry, this has to be cut out because I'm think, an angry woman. No, no, this stays in. <laughs> I feel no, like no, with no. Billie Eilish though and, and things like that, the lyric element comes into play some and it's easier to understand phrasing because the words inflect, inflect the phrasing a little bit. 
I, I actually, I want to say, I, I wholeheartedly agree with Ksenia that uh, so many people don't listen to this stuff. And I remember like being in school, listening to, to Keiko Abe recordings. We were like, oh, are you, are you playing this piece? Or you no, I just like how it sounds. What's, <laughs> that's weird. Why is it weird? If, if I don't want to listen to it, why would anyone listen to me play it? So yeah, I, I, and you know, of course, like any music with good phrasing can influence other music with good phrasing. But going back to Caleb's example of time for marimba, you can listen to the Beatles all day long and still not know how to phrase time for marimba. So yeah, I think Kazenia is totally right. Like a lot of people don't actually consider the music that they play as music or at least at an equal standard to or equally listenable to popular music or anything like that. So I don't know. I, I agree well, with Kazenia on that. Well, I think there's a, you know, speaking of Carly's judges from piano competitions when she was a kid, it's like there is a, there is a um, historical aspect to this, this, these thinkings, right? I mean, like, like, isn't it a Glenn Gould thing to play like really flat? Don't let yourself get in the way. It's definitely a Pierre Boulez thing. Like, don't let, don't us get in, like, we just kind of need to play what's there and let that speak for itself. Because, I mean, I think we've all seen it when the, the person who, um, you know, they play the first chord of a piece and they're like, their eyes are closed and their heads tilted back and they're already like 100% in it. I, I don't get that. It's like, how are you already in it? Nothing's happened yet, you know? Um, like, how is the music affecting you when there hasn't been music yet? I personally don't get that. So it's like, I can see how some people are like, ugh, that's like too much. And then other people do nothing. You're like, oh, it's too little. So it's like, it, it's hard to boil it down to like a quick, quick, bit or two of advice and then uh just calm down Ksenia it's coming and then um I think we're also talking about like phrasing doesn't necessarily mean you're expressive like just because you phrase something doesn't mean you're playing emotionally I think it's they're related and it's on your way to that you can't have expression without having some phrase in most cases but there probably are cases where you certainly can play really expressive and 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 I mean depending on the the piece of music all right Ksenia let me have it I think we're back on fighting terms. <laughs> Sorry. No, we're not, we're not fighting, but I think oh. raising then sounds like you're teaching someone like a performative thing. Like here's how you check this box so that you yeah. appear as someone who feels stuff. I think it's totally not okay to say that, you know, how can people, uh, you know, close their eyes and tilt their head and, and hear music before the music starts. I mean, how can you say how, I should behave when I'm elated. When someone calls me and tells me good news, you're like, well, the way she was joyful about this, the way her mouth was open, the way her eyebrows raised just wasn't, you know, quite my body language. It's none of your business. It's it's my business, right? But I, I didn't say I didn't say how one has to do it. I just say I don't get it. Like I don't get it yet. Cause I mean I'm not feeling that. I'm as the observer, I'm not feeling what you heard in your head prior to your first note. So yeah, that's all I'm saying. No, it's fine. I, I don't, I don't criticize people for playing that way, but like, I don't play that way. It's like, I don't get that. I don't understand that. And like, I don't know how, if, if the first note of the piece, they're doing like the most expressive gesture, that's like, that's as expressive as the same gesture at the climax. Then I like the climax is weakened. It's like those, it's like those tr awful Transformers movies. Every battle is like $9 billion worth of CG flying explosions and amazing stuff. Like two minutes into the movie, you have the most epic, crazy thing ever. And then you get to the actual like scene that is the climax and it's the same. And you're like, oh, was that, I'm sorry, was that something different? So I guess it's that. It's like, that's, that's how I, that's how I feel it. But I, I do think some of it comes from just 
doing things more. You know, my son is learning how to read and he talks perfectly expressively, but he does not read expressively. So mm -hmm. it is a foreign thing for him. And then as he gets more comfortable reading, he becomes more expressive when he reads. I, th I think it's the same for our students. As we introduce them to new things, it is not natural for them to be expressive because they're, you know, you know, they're, they're in a, a, a different priority level of just trying to survive the piece, mm -hmm. I think, at the beginning level. So maybe we don't have to teach them what to express, but I, I do think that's an element of technique is how to bring out what you want to express through your abilities and through the piece. Well, and that's, and that's kind of where the wind is blowing for me these days with students. Like if someone is younger and they're not too seasoned or experienced, they don't have a lot of music in the ear and they play a Bach, they play it pretty dang correct as notes are there, everything's there. And it's like, okay, yeah, like maybe give a few ideas specific and then maybe just go listen to something. Like go listen to something and say like, like look how the way like, look how this performer like goes down here and then up here and listen to the way they do this here and listen to the way like Caleb said, like they lean on stresses, they lighten up on releases, um, s stuff like that, you know, because yeah, like it, it does just have to become a, a, it's a learned thing. Like you've all been saying, well, Tracy, with what Casey was just saying, I think some of it too is an issue oh. in academia in that we, we learn a piece and we expect them to like learn everything that they're going to get about this piece in the first time that they're learning the piece and then we put it away and to me i think the thing is is that yeah they can learn it and they can get the notes and the rhythms and stuff like that and everybody's probably hearing the dog in the background um they get the notes and the rhythms and stuff and so i think sometimes go away from it and then come back to it and let them have the chance to um have bring more to the sense of phrasing and everything else as they've developed more as a musician i think too often we like just do it the one time and it's gone and they never get a chance to do anything more with it yeah yeah i just took away Cassandra's co-host permissions by the way just took them away i'm giving them to caleb caleb be the new co-host i'm sorry i cried <laughs> <laughs> all right as the new co-host we're doing survival rules. Everybody vote one person off the island for good. <laughs> well, I'm out. <laughs> Is that how we're closing the episode? <laughs> I think, yeah, we've gone, we've gone quite a bit over, but I, I feel like, gosh, Cindy, you got so many good Instagram uh, responses. We should, uh, we should share a few more. And wasn't there a video? Should we talk about Marimba Spiritual? Yeah, there was, uh, there was a little video. Let's, let's at least uh, read out what people listed as their favorite pieces. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, name? I I found one from, and you'll have to help me with the last name, uh, Leon uh, Zamovich. Zaimovich. Zaimovich. I knew the J wouldn't be hard, uh, but yeah, back to the topic at hand of um, yeah, big influential pieces or pieces that we learned a lot from. Leon says, absolutely. I will try to keep this brief for Instagram's messaging limits. In my opinion, the core core. Um, Afrogeese, I love this piece also. And its very nature is a piece of overcoming your distractions. The solo is overwhelming, but also as a listener and as a performer. I took on this overwhelming interpretation of the piece whenever I performed. Due to the overwhelming nature of schools closing and performances being canceled, eventually months went by without seeing my colleagues and friends. I moved back home, but my heart was still back at school. Regardless of the circumstances, I continued practicing 
anything with Cora Core, but it was just about the only constant I had. Over time, my interpretation started evolving. It seemed to stray away from an overwhelming tale into a story of coming to peace with your distractions. As a full-time teacher and as I tackle other career goals, cello performance, the piece has helped me come to peace with distractions instead of letting them overcome me. Well, that's freaking cool. Yeah. Way to go, Leon. I love this piece, by the way. Caleb and I, uh, one of our now graduated master students, Adam DePercio, he, he's been on the show uh, once I can remember for sure when we had a soap percussion on and Caleb and Adam hosted in my absence. Um, Adam auditioned with Cora Cora and it was just awesome just mind-bending um i think caleb do you remember his audition do you remember being mind-bended caleb you muted yeah, yeah no yeah it was good <laughs> that's, that's all i got it was good I don't know. okay anyway uh let's read another one yeah so um we had well this this you won't like but alan says classical sonata Ugh. by pius chang that's a good piece. Uh, Alan said, it made me learn that actually playing slowly ingrained the motions without waste of energy and that relaxing is important when playing fast for majority of the time. So there you go, folks, relaxing. And the piece is really catchy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go for another one. Anybody? I'll do one. I'll do uh, Hannah, HV Percussion. Um, she writes about Michi by Keiko Abe and says it taught me so much about expression and freedom and playing. And absolutely, I have a, a student working on Michi right now, and it's been so awesome to see him kind of go from, I'm not sure what to do. Like, should I just play the intro and the ending as written to developing his own ideas? And, and for a lot of students, I think Michi is probably a maybe a first time improvising or or composing something short, having their own voice in there. I teach Michi a lot. Yeah, yeah Michi. That's a good I, one. I learned a ton from Mishi. I feel like it doesn't, I feel like a lot of Keiko Abe um, doesn't get played as much as it used to when I was a kid. I mean, there's a lot more rep now, of course, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's very important we keep keep playing Keiko Abe. The Keiko Abe stuff is also nice because there's, there's enough room to work on your sound in the piece. It's not just ramming notes mm -hmm. all over the place, but it's still very good music. I got to talk with uh, some students about um, Merlin. I know nobody's mentioning Merlin, which is good because I don't. I'm not crazy about Merlin, but like, it's really hard. But it doesn't sound like it's that hard. Whereas, like, you know, I don't know, velocities. You can tell it's hard. You know, you can you you listen to it and you can go like, oh yeah, I can tell that's tough. But like Merlin is like really, or it's like um from My Little Island um aldridge like it doesn't sound hard but it's really hard so there's something there's, there's something about that like that always subtracts a few points on on my opinion scale for a piece you know it's like i think i think if you if you knew the instrument better you you could actually get exactly what you're getting easier i mean I still think I, I still get my palms start sweating when I hear someone play Merlin. So I don't think it looks easy. But... I don't think so either. I don't think so. Maybe it, it's it sounds easy. Method. Doesn't it sound easy? Like dee don't dee don't be bobby do 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 It's like it's like it's it's <laughs> it's kind of like like, like it's not like super tense, you know. <laughs> Like I, I, we know it's hard, and you see them, and you go like, "Whoa, that looks really hard." But you listen, and like it's, it's like. You know, it, it doesn't sound nearly as 
intense as it is to play. If played well, yeah, it sounds pretty chill. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, of course. Cool. Shall we? Uh, can may I share? My yeah, story? I gave I gave it back to you. You said yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The shun the shun's over. Okay. Thank you. For now. For now. Okay. Uh, we'll just share. We had one listener send in a, a video, which I thought was really sweet. Wait, wait, wait. New share. I have to say share sound. Oh my God. I'm sorry. We have WebEx. Damn it. Sorry. <laughs> I, hate WebEx. <laughs> I hate WebEx. Listen. So the at percussion podcast asked the question of what piece has really influenced you the most. Uh, they are asking why. So I figured I'd just make a video. It's a little bit easier for me to kind of explain it but the piece that I would definitely say has influenced me the most and taught me the most is marimba spiritual um just the first off like it's one of the first I guess I would say like big boy marimba solos I've really done um and there's just so many different aspects of the piece first off you know it's like around 15 minutes or so. So just, it really taught me how to maintain control, um, how to, you know, memorize a piece of that length, really how to learn a piece that of that length too was something that I, that I got from learning this piece. Um, that is where, where the video stopped, but I thought that was super sweet that uh, Vincent spoke into his phone and shared with us. It's the milestone. Uh, it seems like it's kind of a milestone comment. You know, I feel like there's there's difficulty milestones, and those can be in really short pieces. But then there's, uh, I mean, Marimba Spiritual is difficult for a ton of reasons. But yeah, one of them being the, just the length and the substance of it all. We're doing it right now, and it's a piece I've played a lot. Uh, I've played the solo several times. I've played all the accompanying parts, uh, you know, several times over the years. And uh, yeah, man, I, I love teaching Marimba Spiritual. I feel like there's there's so it's so easy to teach now. I mean, it's one of those pieces that you just, you know, every little nook and cranny of it, you know, all the different ways people tend to do stuff. And it's just like, it's always fun to teach. I get excited and like, Oh, a student really wants to do that. Or it's been a while since we've done it. And Oh yeah, yeah, we can, we can do it. Yeah, Ben. Uh, yeah. I think the, uh, the accompaniment parts on Marimba Spiritual are uh, deceptively difficult. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I think maybe for, for grad students, you could throw it out and do it in one rehearsal, but for undergrad students, uh, there's a lot of off-kilter stuff where it's so easy to get lost, things like that. But uh, I was going to ask, Casey, since you've played it a bunch, it sounds like, and anyone else who wants to shout out, does anyone have a favorite recording of Marimba Spiritual? And I will say that mine is Kekwabi with Kramata Percussion Ensemble. I mean, Kashka's is the one in my head, you know, the original Marimba Spiritual Kashka, her first CD. Um, I feel like uh, Eriko Daimos is, is really in my in my ear lately. I, I do know She's that... the last person I, I played it with her at PASIC some years ago and I got that one in there and it's like, yeah, I know. it's just like heavy Erico, metal. Erico is just, she, her performance of that piece is exceptional. I remember Svet talking about Erico is the only person he's ever seen that's able to play it so fast that the percussionists have trouble keeping up with the marimba player. <laughs> yeah, we had to really play fast, I remember. Um, but it was, it was really cool because you could also really play loud uh with erico you know um i remember ronnie um wetzel right he was on the podcast he was playing the bass part i was playing one of the high parts but he had two bass drums for the end and he was doing like verity 
smashes and Erica was just laughing and you could still hear everything. And I think part of that is credit to how well it's orchestrated. You know, I mean, Miki really puts the big hits in good places where it's, it's not going to have to fight the marimba very hard. It was a great performance. We love that. Mm, thanks. Yeah. Um, all right. So to wrap up, here's a few more that we received. So we had from uh, Lucia Viana da Silva, who wrote to us from Sweden, she said uh, Rebon A was her drug of choice. Austin said uh, box G minor violin sonata. Alenka Jezernik from Poland, she said Toccata by Anna Ignatovic. Uh, then we mentioned these. Then Michael, um, some mad vibes on Instagram, said Memory of the Woods by Kemi Naito or Over the Rainbow transcription by Roberto Etomo. Uh, we mentioned this one. Orson said, any piece really, each one has something and slightly different to offer. Paige Durr said, time for marimba, pushed my music Paige. off to a new level. Thank yeah, you. Paige. She's one of ours. She is. She's a great one. Um, Dimitri Konovalchuk said, speaking drums because of Martin Grubinger's performance. Uh, Ero Tekuniemi from Finland said, the rhythm song for marimba. And I thought this one was really interesting. He said uh, he was about 15 when uh, he learned it. And before that, almost all of his mallet solos were either fast and crazy or slow and sad. And rhythm song in his mind wasn't sad or happy or crazy and happy. Um, so even though his mallets were moving quickly, the piece felt slow and melody felt calm. So that was something interesting. We mentioned Michi. Andrew said Sue refractions. And I think that means that we've gone through all of them. Barbara from Porto in Portugal said side by side, taught her a lot about mm -hmm. time. And then I think there's the reflections. All. I think there's the reflections on the nature of water. Yeah, I mentioned that before. It's uh, we did. yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. I was gonna say I love um, side by side. I've only taught it twice. Um, but uh, this multi percussion solo, I, I love just pulling up a couple recordings and just actually regarding performance expression um, and playing with with some emotion just like how people choose to do the opening of that piece and it's like you're on a on a on a skin drums usually a conga and you're like do 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 and it's something like you know 40 hits of that and then one little rhythm do 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 there's like this little hiccup in the rhythm and it's so cool to see like how people just treat that because you're not doing a lot yet and it's very easy to understand with one listen what to expect and what to do and it's just it's just fun watching that recording uh, different recordings of that one piece side by side and just saying like all right what's this performer doing which one of these performers is selling it to you better which one of these performers is drawing it out which one of these performers is playing it like they don't care um yeah that's something nancy would say to us all the time she'd like get on her case for screwing something up and so we'd fix it and now we're playing it and she's like yeah but now you're playing it like you don't care be like ah oh, it's like that's what she did when she was when she was mad at you she was <laughs> like yeah tell you now you're doing this no now you're blowing that rhythm and now you're playing like you don't even care it's like oh it's so good it's really <laughs> what, what i needed did you have those carly i just remember there's always something which is good i mean that's a teacher's job like to to like let's keep picking let's keep you know polishing and refining everything there's always something cool hey well i've had enough um i think we've all had enough <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey thank you. <laughs>
Hey, th hey, thank you all so much. This was a round table. So I uh, really appreciate you all. This was uh, 277. Look out for 278. Uh, Carly Vigna, Tracy Wiggins, Ben Charles, Caleb Pickering, Ksenia Kamianovich, and Chris Dandellis. Thank you all so much, and we'll uh, catch you next time.